Well, here we are. If you were listening to the sermon reading, text reading, this ought to be a lot of fun. We knew this was coming as soon as we started Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, and we tend not to be in the habit of skipping passages. We've covered head coverings. We've covered everything under the sun, so why not cover a command from God to get a divorce? <laughs> I will tell you that it's coming. We're going to deal with that. Um, but uh, we are not going to unpack and unravel all of that today, but it's coming. And it's, it's a, wow, what a text. Well, here's what I want to say from the outset. And I really would like to speak to all of the children, if you would look up here at me. All of the children, you say, who are the children? Everyone living under the authority of their parents. I want you to know that we are fixing to, over the next couple of weeks, deal with some very, very hard passages where God's saying some things that we wonder why did he tell us that? But the most important thing that you need to understand in the sermon today and the next couple of weeks is very, very clear. And it's this, it's that knowing and obeying Jesus must be the most important thing in your life. Knowing and obeying Jesus must be the most important thing in your life. Children, Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. The title of my sermon is A Wedding with the World. Sermon 23 and this exposition through Ezra. And here's the setting. You have a couple. And the couple has met, and the cake has been ordered, and the invitations have been sent out, and they've ordered dresses, and they have measured out suits, and they are right at the cusp of the moment of their lives, which they've dreamed of forever. And they're heading to the altar in holy matrimony, and all are there, and they're celebrating, they're applauding with joy. But as you look up to get a glimpse of the bride and the groom, you realize that what is taking place before you is the most wicked of all weddings. It's one that should not be. God's people are being wedded to the world and they are forsaking their bride, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had reared them for himself. And this is what happens in our life when we forsake God's word and when we turn from his ways. And this is what we see in Ezra chapter 10. And as we come to Ezra 10, we must acknowledge that we are entering the waters of an unbelievably peculiar and mysterious ending. This ending to this marvelous journey that we've been walking through throughout the book of Ezra as we come to what we know of as the final chapter. Friends, this is an ending that had you not read the book, you would have never guessed in a thousand years. And I will tell you that we're going to deal with all of the sticky issues and we're not going to get in a hurry to do it. But we might be left at the end of this book with more questions than we have answers and I want to warn you of that. But we also are left with some crystal clear truths about solemn resolution, about real repentance, about a holy return back to the Lord. There are many puzzling pieces to the passage before us, but we're given also a recipe of true revival. As I read through chapter 10, preparing to close out this book, I'm reminded of a truth 
that I have seen played out in my life over and over and over in pastoral ministry and in the church and just life as a Christian. And this truth is wedded to Ezra 10. And it's the truth that ministry is messy. It's messy. It's always messy. Ministry is messy. So where are we? After a three and a half month journey, the second return back from exile to Jerusalem, we have Ezra the scribe, the master of the law of God. He's been in the land for about four and a half months. God has raised him up for such a time as this. And it's being reported to him as he inspects the spiritual condition of God's people that the people are flouting the clear commands of God and they are taking pagan wives for themselves and for their sons. They're intermixing with the world and they should have known that God's law strictly forbids such a heinous practice. They're spiritually defiling themselves and all of their offspring through which the Messiah would come by marrying these pagans. And in the act of doing so, they're preaching a lie before the world, the lie that Christ is married to Satan, that light has fellowship with darkness. They are obliterating the very picture that would come with the new covenant of Christ being united to his church, that picture preached in marriage. So as we enter what we know of as chapter 10, I want to give you four clear points that bring us to a very sorrowful crossroads. Number one, I want you to notice a display of true repentance in verse 1. A, dis a display of true repentance and what it looks like. Number two, we see in verses two through five, a call to holy resolution. A call to holy resolution. Number three, verse six, is a time of personal mourning. In, verse, in verses seven through eight, number four, we see a proclamation to corporately assemble. And just wait until you see where they are and what God calls them to. Number one, let's begin with a display of true repentance. Let's not get ahead of ourselves while Ezra prayed and made confession in verse 1, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, I want you to picture the scenario. Can you envision it? A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. This one verse is full of verbs, meaning actions. What's interesting is that if you look in Ezra 7, verse 27, through Ezra 9, 15, for the most part, Ezra is the narrator. He's been speaking firsthand about the events. But now we get a different voice. We shift to a third person. Someone else is retelling the narrative of what happened. We saw this in chapter 7. We saw this in chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. And it happens again in Nehemiah 8. We don't know why the narrator changes, but we do know that we're about to get a different perspective. And it could be that the narrator is just simply, sim simply summarizing all of the details. There's a lot of debate among scholars about which parts of the book of Ezra Ezra would have personally wrote, calling it the Ezra Memoirs, and which parts another editor would have possibly written. We see something similar. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. What we have before us is not the first time we've seen this. 
If you look back many generations in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 5, it says that Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a, a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. God's people then are under great catastrophe. God has brought judgment on the land because of the sins of the people and God has graciously provided a contingency plan. A contingency plan has been put in place and Ezra is following that plan. Look with me at another passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Maybe you've heard this passage before, the contingency plan that's put in place when Solomon builds the very first temple, the one that had been destroyed when God's people were sent in exile before God brought them back during the days of Ezra. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon knew that it would be possible that God's people would send themselves back into exile and ruin. And the question is, what do we do then? 2 Chronicles 7 verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land... Or send pestilence among my people. Here it is. Never knew it was in this context, did we? If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and find themselves in over their heads and under God's discipline because of their sins, and if they would pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be made open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And God says, if you turn from me in if you bring judgment on this land, I will curse your blessings. But if you will turn to me in your sin, if you will acknowledge the weight of your sin, and if you'll repent and turn from your sin and lift your eyes to heaven and weep bitterly and confess and show sorrow with an intent to follow my righteous ways, if that is your heart, I will incline my face to you, I will hear you, I will forgive you, and I will bless all of your ways. And Ezra knows these passages. He knows where he's situated. He knows the times and he, look in verse 1, prayed and made confession. 
We saw this confession in Ezra 9. We see a similar one in Daniel 9.20, another in, in Nehemiah. We saw at the beginning of chapter 9 where Ezra was appalled upon hearing the news of these marriages. He tore his garments. He tore out his hair. He sat in shock. He was ashamed. He was too embarrassed in his blushing over sin to lift his face. Chapter 9, verse 10, he's praying and yet he's speechless. And he knows in verse 15 of chapter 9 that he and the people don't have a leg to stand on. So we see that Ezra is weeping and casting himself down. The New King James Version says bowing down. The New American Standard says that he's prostrating himself, if you can picture it, before the house of God. So now we see that he's before the temple. He's facing the manifestation of God's holy presence in this display. It's not a new display. It's what Moses did in Deuteronomy 9.18 when he was on the mountain for 40 days and nights receiving the law of God. And just as he was receiving it, Israel, under the authority of the priest Aaron, was breaking that law. It's what we see in Nehemiah 1 when he gets the news that the walls have been broken down and the gates burned. What Ezra is doing is what we ought to be doing under such circumstances. It's a fitting response. He's weeping and casting himself down before God's people, before the temple. Look with me in verse 4 of chapter 9. We saw all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around Ezra. He's sitting stunned. And then he rises up from his fasting. He falls out on his knees to cry out to God. And this assembly joins him. And if you look in chapter 10 at the text before us, we see that men and women or children are watching this unfold. Here is a high Persian dignitary who has been sent on behalf of the king. And he is weeping and wailing before God, casting himself on his face in great sorrow over this catastrophe of sin. And the people start to notice. And a crowd starts to gather. You know what this looks like. You can't even go down Highway 231 and see a fender bender before you see every neck going down the road trying to get eye to what's happened. And then you got 20 other wrecks. But this is different. They not only begin to see what Ezra is doing, this man of God, this dignitary sin on behalf of the Persian Empire, but these men, women, and children begin to gather around him. And it's interesting that we have men, women, and children. This is family integration. This is age integration. This is men and women, boys and girls of all ages. They all begin to gather together as one. And they not only watch Ezra, they joined Ezra. And look at their response in verse 1. The people wept bitterly. They knew that God's wrath hovers over a hard heart, but God forgives and he shows mercy to trembling hearts time and time again. What happens is that when sin has been committed, oftentimes the full impact of that sin is not immediately embraced. 
But here's what I've noticed. Repentance typically breeds repentance. Repentance typically breeds repentance. And oftentimes that numb heart is brought further in line with God's God's ways and it begins to melt tenderly before God's presence. And so Ezra's repentance is breeding more and more repentance in the life of the people and it's capturing them. And as they are captured, everyone around, boys and girls, this includes you, their hearts are shredded into a thousand pieces. We see something very similar in the New Testament. They have tears in their eyes, sorrow in their hearts, restitution in their hands, and they are cut to the heart. In Acts chapter 2, the gospel is being preached by the apostles. And as it goes out in Acts 2.35... The people are hearing this heralding of the message, and the response from those listening is not boredom. It's not staring off or thinking about lunch. It's not just get on with it. Immediately, they are arrested to the preaching of the gospel, and the Bible says that they are cut in heart, and they respond with these words, brothers, what shall we do? This is the way that our hearts ought to be positioned before God. Before we get to anything going on with these divorces or why, far more important than tangling, untangling that issue is seeing the heart posture in these people. They're listening as we should be listening. They're listening not with minds just eager to accumulate information, not with emotions that are just eager to be tickled. They are listening with wills that are intent to obey God. And at the end of the sermon, the response is, what should we do? Because as Brian prays every week before we begin the sermon, we're praying that we would not only be hearers of the word, but by faith, by God's grace and with his strength, we would want to obey what the word says. What do we do? What do we do? Just tell us what we should do. And that's what we want to do. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I believe 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 9, if you could prick their heart, I believe this is the verses that would bleed. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. If you're not there, keep turning. I rejoice, Paul said, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. I'm not happy because you're sad. I'm happy because of what the sadness has produced in you. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But there's another kind of grief. Worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. You want a vivid illustration of worldly grief and godly grief? Take two men who sold out Jesus and betrayed him. Peter and Judas. Peter sold out his Lord 
He repented and God used him to build the church. Judas sold out his Lord, but there was a worldly sorrow that did not lead to repentance. What is repentance? It's feeling something of the weight of our sin and confessing it before God. It's siding with God even against ourselves. And then it's receiving God's grace and forgiveness and by God's grace intending to do differently, to walk according to God's ways. So repentance must be discerned. And it's more than words, a few tears, and a bag full of regrets, but certainly it should begin there. The Bible says that repentance is a gift of God. God grants it in his grace, and it's a kindness for him to do so. But let's begin to move forward into the heart of this narrative. Look with me in that number two at a call to holy resolution, a call to put away any peaceful coexistence with sin. And I hope that God brings to mind any in our own life. Look with me in verse 2. Very fascinating passage. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, stick that in your back pocket for later, of the sons of Elam addressed Ezra. And here's what they said. So Shechaniah comes to Ezra. You say, who is Shechaniah? We don't know. All we know is what's in the text. He's the son of Jehiel, so we know who his daddy is. He comes from the family of the sons of Elam. He steps forward, and to our knowledge, this man holds no formal authority. But he stands on the word of God, so his, his words carry weight because they're in line with God's word. He appears to step forward as a sort of representative of the people. He identifies with him. And he's going to say, we, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women or pagan wives, in verse 2, from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this, if they'll repent. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. One scholar said, instead of whipping a reluctant people into action, Ezra has pricked their conscience to the point at which now they're urging him to act. A difficult, a very difficult thing must be done. And so Shechaniah steps forward and he addresses Ezra very respectfully and he says, here's what needs to be done and you must do it. Now, I want to think about this for a minute. In Ezra chapter 2, verse 7, we see the sons of Elam. They're counted as having come back in the first wave, and again in the second wave, a few less, in Ezra 8, 7. There's a lot of different Shechaniahs in the Bible. We don't know for sure who that is. And if you look at the end of chapter 10, he's not listed among the offenders. But I want you to speculate just for one moment, and that's all it is. Look with me in verse 26. 
Look with me in verse 26. Who was Shechaniah's father? Ezra 10 told us, we read it earlier, it's Jehiel. He was from the sons of Elam. We are going to see at the end of this book that the offenders against God's law are called out by name. And they are recorded in the best-selling book of all time called the Bible. We know specifically who every single one of them are. And one of them is a man by the name of Jehiel, which may not be a big deal because that could indeed be a common name, but this man was also from the family of Elam. What this means is that as Shechaniah stands forth and calls on Ezra to do the hard thing, it is entirely possible that Shechaniah's father was one of the offenders. He could be standing with God against his own father who has offended God. We don't know that. We don't know that. But there are many signs to point to the fact that it could be the case. What about Shechaniah? Would that mean he would be exiled and take the punishment as well? Probably not. At this point, he seems to be an adult. Maybe he was grafted in. Maybe his father married twice. If that is the case from the original authorized marriage, we don't know. But it underscores the point that here is a man when he is convinced that God wants a certain thing done He insists that it be done. And he not only insists that it's done, he says, Ezra, we're with you. We will support you. We are behind you 1,000%. Arise and do the hard thing. Here is a godly man taking manly action, showing unbelievable courage. And they're standing together in solidarity. He says in verse 2, they had broken faith, they trespassed, they were unfaithful with God. Ezra 9, 1 and 2 calls it faithlessness. So these God-fearers have entered intimate unions with God-haters. Now it is interesting that the words used in this text for marrying, coming together, taking wives, and the words used for divorcing, putting away the wives... Scholars smarter than me say that these are not the normal words that are used for marriage and divorce. These are the words in our modern translations, but we see a similar word for the word foreign used in Proverbs describing a harlot, a union that may mirror marriage but not be marriage. But that is not conclusive and I don't even think that that is necessarily the best interpretation of what to do with these divorces. We'll save that for another time. So look with me in verse 2. But even now, there's hope. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. In other words, you cover your sins and God will uncover them. But you uncover your sins and God will cover them in the blood of Jesus Christ. So look what he says in verse 3. Shechaniah says, Ezra, the people, and it seems to have their support, need to make a covenant. Let us make a covenant with God. 
a sworn oath. Let's pledge allegiance. Let's make a solemn, oath-bound promise to undertake this specific action. We see covenants made throughout the scriptures, covenants that God makes with men and covenants that men make with one another. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, if you want to look there in your Bible, a prophet came to the king, King Asa, and he said that if you will seek the Lord, God will be found by you. But if you forsake the Lord, God will forsake you. And Israel had been without law and priest, and trouble had covered the land in 2 Chronicles 15. And a prophet comes to the king Encouraged, and he told him to put away all the idols in the land and gather all the people together and sacrifice to the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 15, 12, it says, they entered into a, what? Covenant to seek the Lord. The God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman, they swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. He even removed his own mother from her position because she would not forsake her idolatry. In Nehemiah 10, verse 38, do we not only see God's people making covenants to put away sin and together resolving to follow the Lord, but look with me in Nehemiah 10, 38. We'll see this later because we're going to go through Nehemiah, Lord willing, too. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. How about that? In writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Throughout the Bible, King Hezekiah, King Josiah, all of Israel, many places, God's people are covenanting and even in places signing their names to the bottom line to say, our resolution is to live in such a way that we denounce our sin and we live for the glory of Christ. And sin takes over our life time and time again, and we want to renounce that, and we want to turn to the Lord. This is the heart that we have. This is our desire. Joshua 24 said, Put away your gods and covenant to serve the only true God. So what did the covenant entail? This is the question. What should their response be? I believe it's one of the most striking and puzzling passages in the entire Bible. Should they make the most of the bad situation? I mean, because by the way, the egg has been scrambled now. You can't unscramble the egg. You have what you have at this point. Should they just make lemonade with these lemons? Should they pray for the, for the wives that they've taken? Should they be taught to be faithful to those wives? That's what we would expect. That's not what we're told. And this is not a passage that makes you want to preach to the book of Ezra. Because we come to a chapter now, as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, I have spent the last 20 years of my ministry trying to keep people married to each other, 
trying to help us as we do ourselves work toward healthy, holy families intact only to come to a passage that says you must put away your wives. What in the world do you do with that? How do you square that with the rest of the Bible? How does this even apply in our own families? Should we put away our own wives? The answer is no. The New Testament is very clear about that. But we'll work on unscrambling that egg in the weeks ahead. The point here that I want us to get before we get there is that they are called on to do some very difficult things. I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In verses 27 through 30, we have a call against adultery and lust. And Jesus says some very familiar words. If your right eye causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it out. You know anyone that only has one eye because of that verse? Only problem with an overly literal translation is that you can still sin with your heart. Should you cut it out too? No, but God, you're in need of God doing that. But the point is take radical measures. What about your hand? If your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. Jesus is saying don't shelter and nurture your darling sins like a friend, but give all of your sins a bill of divorce at all costs and resolve to have nothing to do with them. One other passage, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that a person's enemies will be the members of his own home. Now, I want to clarify a couple of things before this goes too far. And before we get too farther into what's going on here, first of all, I want to put all of my cards on the table and I want to make it crystal clear that the New Testament clarifies in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3 that when a believer finds himself or herself married to an unbeliever, they're not to get divorced so as long as the unbeliever will stay. So don't jump to wrong conclusions before you leave out of here. And second of all, I want to make clear that serving and leading our families is not at odds with serving and following Jesus Christ. That's a false dichotomy. Ordinarily, the way that we honor and serve Jesus is by being faithful in our families. Being faithful in our families. Being a faithful husband or a wife is the way that we are faithful Christians. So someone says, you know, 
I'm not a wife or a mother. I'm not a husband or a father. I'm a Christian. Well, thank you very much, Sherlock. I appreciate you clarifying what should have been perfectly obvious as if we didn't understand that. But the way that we live out our Christianity is through tangible means of serving and leading the way that God has designed. Yes, our identity first and foremost is in Christ, and the way that we live out our Christianity is in the circumstances ordinarily of being faithful husbands and fathers, wives, children, so forth and so on. But there still is a point to be made here that when and if the rubber hits the road, our allegiance to Jesus Christ must be held above even our own family. Verse 3. We're told that this was according to the counsel of my Lord. It looks like Ezra is giving the counsel, and it's according to the counsel of those who tremble at the, at the commandment of our God. And Shechaniah says this has to be done in accordance with God's law in verse 3. We see Genesis 21 and Verse 14, where a wife is put away and then provision is made for her. She's given legal rights. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, do not enter marriages with foreign pagans. We see in Deuteronomy 24 that there are laws that would provide for circumstances of divorce. Deuteronomy 24 says when an indecency has been found, and it explains what that looks like. But to be put in the situation that we have here, a situation so important and so extreme, looks to me to be new waters for God's people. New waters to God's people. This is an exceptionally difficult circumstance. It's an exceptional circumstance altogether. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the big picture is they've repented and repentance always leads to revival. If there's repentance in our life, there will be revival, there will be reformation, there will be tangible evidence to show that there has been a change and it will bleed to the way that we live. So look with me in verse 4. Shechaniah says, do this difficult thing. Be strong. We're with you. Do it according to God's law. Be a godly man taking manly responsibility with courage. And you can only imagine if you or I were Ezra. This is a decision that is not going to get you the most popular priest of the year award. Let's just put it that way. Can you imagine the fear of man that would be plaguing Ezra? If he were filled with the fear of man, he would never go forward with something like this. Can you imagine the false accusations that he's going to get? Can you imagine how misunderstood he's going to be? Can you imagine how much he is potentially going to be hated before the entire world, especially his own people? And it reminds us that sometimes our lives come to a crossroads. 
And in the words of John MacArthur, this is the crossroads that we find ourselves coming to at critical junctures sometimes. Sometimes you have to decide if you want to be faithful or if you want to be popular. But you can't always be both faithful and popular with the people. And I believe that Ezra is at that crossroads. Am I going to be faithful and do what I believe the law of God requires? It clearly requires, and it was clear in Ezra and Shechaniah's mind, even if it wasn't clear in our mind. It was clear in theirs. They, they hold a lot more cards. They know more details. There's a lot of details that we are not given about this situation, and we'll talk about that next time. You can either be popular or you can be faithful, but you cannot always have both. What a legalist. Can you imagine the false accusations that are coming? What a tyrant. He's so heartless. He's not being loving and accepting enough. He needs to be more inclusive. But if there's anything within Ezra, he's not just trying to do hard things for the sake of being a jerk. He's not just trying to make difficult decisions for the sake of being known as a manly, brazen, heartless man. Before this decision is made, Ezra is weeping his face off because he so loves God's glory and he so loves God's people. His heart is breaking for the things that break God's heart. He's not standing as an aloof outsider. He is personally affected. And he's fixing to act as a civil magistrate. Here's another principle that we learn from this. Courage often breeds courage. Courage often breeds courage. Ezra's weeping, the people gathering around him. Shechaniah says, stand against the entire world, even when that means standing against the sins of your own people in such a scandalous situation. And he says, do it, and Ezra arises, and he does what's right. Friends, a little bit of courage will oftentimes breed courage in the people around you to follow the Lord. It's a courage to stand against the world even when the world is within you. So what's his response? Look in verse 5. He got up. He gathered the priests and Levites who were also guilty. He gathered all the people and he pressed them. Take this oath, covenant, make a solemn vow right here, right now. Ecclesiastes 5.5 says that it is better to not make a vow than to make a vow and then break it. And Ezra calls on them to covenant. Number three, a time of personal mourning. So what happens in verse six? What's Ezra's response? Does he beat his chest and look down his nose? Self-righteous? Not at all. Ezra withdrew from before the house of God, went to the chamber of Jehohanan. We don't know who Je Jehohanan is, maybe a priest, but there would be a chamber, a room in the temple, and he would slip away. Ezra would to Jehohanan. 
Hanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. He would fast. He wouldn't eat bread. He wouldn't drink water. He would mourn over the faithlessness of the people. He was in deep sorrow over their sin. Is this our heart? He's not trying to put on a public spectacle. This is something that modern day churches have a hard time wrapping their heads around. Our modern day church has a real, what I would call a a happy, clappy church culture. The number one virtue in most modern churches is the virtue of enthusiasm. As long as the people are excited and happy, we'll mark that up for a metric that the church is growing. The only problem with that is that scriptures often speak otherwise. It's not that we should live this way. It's not that our lives should always be characterized by this. But there are seasons and there are times when our hearts should burn because we've offended the Lord. Because a loss has occurred among God's people. And this is a season for that, for them. And finally, number four, a proclamation to corporately assemble. Wow. This is where the rubber meets the road. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days... By order of the officials and the elders, so there are local magistrates that are taking care of this, which is a whole other sermon that's coming in itself. All his property should be forfeited. In other words, God's saying, the land that I gave you, the land of milk and honey, if you will not follow in my ways, I'll take the land back. And he himself will be banned from the congregation of the exiles. So they had not spread out farther than about 50 miles, scholars say. They could get there within a day or two. They're given three days to come. And this matter is going to be judged. And they're going to look at every case, case by case. And they're going to see what's happened. They're going to examine the evidence of what's put forward. It's an official decree, and it would put the people's feet to the fire. They've made a covenant. They've listened to the word. Let's do it. Whatever God says, let's do it. We're not just going to pray and figure out what to do. We're going to act, and this would be a time, a very painful time of house cleaning. Literally, in many ways, house cleaning. And the message is, if you're not ready to do that, We're not talking about nitpicking each other over minor issues. We are talking about a major scandalous issue. If you're not ready to do that, if you're not really with us, if you're not committed to being who we say we are, desiring to live in accordance with the covenant that we made, then it's time for you to go. Probably not the most popular priest of the year award. But nothing different than Jesus himself would not later do. When he said that if you're not willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part of me. In other words, if you will not have all of me, you will have none of me. And you can imagine the disciples saying, I really wish Pastor Jesus would quit saying things like that. 
because the budget was as higher, high as it's ever been. The people were packing the place out. We couldn't even fit them all in the parking lot. We're talking about a building expansion, and then he goes on the flesh and blood thing again. But what they understand is what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When a man was having his father's, basically his step-parent, in sexual immorality, and Paul said he must be called to repentance, and the church must be purified, and God purges, purifies his people, and it turns out to be the greatest act of church, church growth in the New Testament church. So God's purifying his people. A distinguishing mark is being made. They're drawing a line in the sand. And for anyone who just merely pretends to love God, who are content to hear the word but not do it, who are content and satisfied in their sins, who do not tremble at God's word, the truth is going to be made known. But there's a way out. You see, the goats and the pretenders are going to go their own way, and the sheep are going to be drawn to the words of God. Look with me at one final passage, James 4. Here's our response to our own sin. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He says he, he earns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, listen, church family, God opposes the proud. You got an arrogant heart prancing around like a peacock, like you're better than everybody else, like you wouldn't struggle with something else. Are you among the proud? God opposes. God is against you. You stand in the way of God with a proud heart. But he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Wash them in the blood of Jesus Christ who forgives sinners who tremble at his word. And he not only does it once or twice, he does it an endless amount of times. He never gets tired of us coming to him with trembling hearts. He forgives and he forgives and he forgives. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Divorce the world. Be united to Christ. Step over the line as his covenant people. And friends, realize that the greatest threat to us it's not you or you or you. It's not the world. I believe that your greatest threat lives with inside your chest every day. It's our own sinful nature. Which is why, as we come to the Lord's table, we too have covenanted together, haven't we? You read that church covenant and you say, there's no way I could live up to that. Which is why we're here and we're saying this is our intention, not that we've perfected it. But this is, this is what we want. This is what we're seeking after. We're seeking to come after Christ 
with every area of our life. And together we are resolved to fight against our own sin, to put it to death, to either forsake your sin or to forsake your Savior. There is no third way. So the message is, treasure no secret sins, ride no divided fences, harbor no darling rebellions, walk in the light, trust in Jesus Christ, and be fully dependent upon all of his grace. And he has promised to strengthen needy saints like you and me. I want to invite you to bow your head. Because not only has he called us into covenant with himself and with one another to daily put away sin and to daily pursue righteousness, to humble ourselves. But he's given us the word. The word is clear. But he's also given us a visual ordinance, a seal, just like you would put a wax seal on an envelope that would secure the contents within that envelope, God has graciously given us a seal to secure all of the words that he's proclaimed to us. He's given us a sign. As we extend the hand and partake of the Lord's Supper, that we are not left on our own to do this because we can't. He is giving us strength and grace. He is nourishing our souls, and he is providing for us what we don't have within ourselves. So what is the Lord's Supper? One old Baptist said that it preaches the cross. It offers to the believer a touching memorial of the entire person and work of Christ. It's a symbol of God's covenant with his people. He said it presents Christ as nourishment and life of the soul. It predicts the second coming of Christ. It's a prediction of our future glory with Christ. It's a symbol of the brotherly and sisterly unity that we have. And when our early Baptist said that in partaking of the Lord's Supper, the Christian performs an act of faith. And at the hands of God, God gives a refreshing of his faith, a brighter, brighter manifestation of God to his soul. It's a declaration of separation from sin, and it's an impartation of God's grace nourishing the faith of his people. So here we are. We've covenanted together to watch over each other, to pray, to pursue our mission of discipleship and witness in the world. And now we're before a meal whereby we would renew that covenant to be separated from the world and to wholly belong to God. Are you hungry this morning? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is that you? Do you hunger for that? Do you want that? Does your sin bother you? Come to the table. Be forgiven of your sin a time and time again and resolve to live for his glory and you shall be satisfied. Father, we thank you for your life-giving word and this meal, this sacrament before us. Father, we desire to renew our commitment with you. And so we pray that we would examine ourselves and we pray that we would be trusting in you. 
Father, we look at our lives and oftentimes see nothing but sin. But we're thankful that you see nothing but your son. We thank you that you discipline us and guard us in your kindness, and we pray that you would draw us to yourself. Father, we pray that you would help us to renew our love for one another, to truly love one another from the heart, sincerely, graciously, as a covenant community. That we would wait for one another, as your word says in 1 Corinthians 11. That we would put one another before and above ourselves. That we would count our own sins higher than the sins of our neighbors. And Father, help us as we seek to renew our focus on our mission, to proclaim the death of Christ until you come. But we thank you that we're not the only actors, that you're acting to present nourishment and communion with our souls in a way that we can't fully understand. So we ask your blessing that you unify us, strengthen us, do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.